I'm wearing my, my sanctuary sweater. This is the one I put on when I'm not feeling well or when I want to be comfy. My little wool sweater, and I put this on, and seriously, I'm, I am like that close to being wrapped up in a blanket on my couch right now. So it's, it's wonderful. And uh, you know, so often that's the feeling or the sensibility that I have when I come into the sanctuary of the Lord. Uh, the place of refuge, the place of peace and comfort where the Spirit just surrounds us, where the Father reminds us in no uncertain terms of His faithfulness and His love for us. And we are in the Sanctuary Psalms, but we are going to finish the Sanctuary Psalms tonight. Uh, Five books in the Psalms, as you know. And book three began in Psalm 73, uh, and paralleling the book of Leviticus, which is all about the sanctuary. And as we've talked about in here several times, these are the sanctuary psalms. Although, a couple of times you might not have thought so. As with Psalm 88. Now, we'll be in Psalm 89 primarily, but I want to go back to Psalm 88 just for a moment because this running theme of sanctuary does run all the way through from Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And Psalm 88 is no exception to that. Now, Sunday we looked at Psalm 88, the haunting psalm of Haman. And you may recall that Psalm 88 is a masculine psalm, a teaching psalm, instructing the listener regarding a particular life in the pits, that is, Joseph. Haman writing historically about Joseph, beginning and ending in the pit. But it speaks more specifically, as we looked at, about Jesus as he went into the pit. That cistern-like pit there in the house of Caiaphas, more so the deeper pit of death itself, Jesus went to that place. Psalm 88 tells us in verse uh, 4, I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. And Jesus went to the pit. And He didn't have a comfy wool sweater to accompany Him there. Jesus went to the pit of darkness that you and I might wander into, might be welcomed into the light of sanctuary. Of His presence. It's marvelous. Joseph was that picture of the suffering servant as Haman was writing historically, suffering for the salvation of Israel, but how much more Jesus, the suffering servant who suffered not only for the salvation of Israel, but the salvation of all people. Several questions were asked in Psalm 88 as we looked at these. Beginning about verse 10, Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? And while Haman was was expecting a no answer as seen in the life of Joseph, the answer truly is yes. Yes, you will perform wonders for the dead. And yes, the departed spirits will rise to praise you. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So yes, the departed spirits will rise and praise the Lord. In verse 11, Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? And the answer again, yes. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8, 
Therefore, Paul writes, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And Paul clarifies, now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Question in verse 12, will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And again, the answer is yes. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. It's one of those wonderful verses that you read and go, wow, something big there. The indication when Jesus was crucified that as His Spirit went into the depths that there in those three days He made proclamation. He preached. He spoke to those who were there in that dark place. What was that proclamation? Well, let me tell you. I don't know. (laughs) I wasn't there. I have no idea. What we do know is Jesus went down to the darkest pit and there proclaimed God's wonders even in the darkness, and led captive a host of captives, all those who had died in faith prior to His coming, led them out. And you might say, so what does Psalm 88 have to do with sanctuary? Everything, gang. Jesus is our sanctuary. And Jesus did everything necessary, everything required, that we might be able to enter into the sanctuary of His Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, as we... Clarify things there in Psalm 88, and as we begin to head into Psalm 89, it is into your sanctuary that we come. And it is with such thankfulness and such joy at the recognition of your grace that purchases for us the right to be here. Not a right that we have worked for, but a right that you bought on Calvary at the cross. A right bought by your precious blood and that of a lamb who was slain. We look at Your Word, we open it up, and even as we do so, we recognize we are in the holy place in the presence of the Spirit of Christ. Thank You, Lord. We ask tonight that You would walk us through the rest of the sanctuary psalm. Psalm 89, teach us. Remind us of Your faithfulness. And continue, Father, to draw out of us all of the joy that You desire for Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus is our sanctuary. Boy, I hope that doesn't just come off as some kind of pastoral catchphrase. It is a great reality. He is our sanctuary, the place to whom we can go. Even when life is in the pits, we have to realize and recognize He's been there. He understands. Your life cannot get so bad that Jesus can't get it. He never looks at a single human being and says, Wow, I don't know what to say to them. Oh my goodness, they've really gone further than I can possibly relate to. They're in a place that's much darker. No, no, despair, He gets it. Sorrow, He understands. Darkness, He knew it. He walked through it. So wherever you've been, He's been there too. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. 
And so Haman's Psalm of the Pit, Psalm 88, has far-reaching implications for the body of Christ. It's not just the implications of Joseph for the people of Israel, but far-reaching implications for the body of Christ, the church. Because even as, as Jesus went through all this before us, we recognize He understands and we have sanctuary, refuge, a fortress, a stronghold in Jesus Christ. But, the sympathy of the Savior, the sanctuary that Jesus has made for us is not just for His church. And that's where we go tonight. Romans 11, verse 1, Paul said, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be! Which people is He talking about? Israel. And He clarifies, God he says, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So if anybody ever says to you, God's done with Israel, take him to Romans 11. Because Paul absolutely refutes that. God is not done. He has not rejected His people whom He knew ahead of time. Romans 11.25, further down in the chapter, Paul writes, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And in verse 29 of that same chapter, he says very clearly, for the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Irrevocable. You cannot. God does not go back on His Word. When He says it, He does it. Now, as we approach Psalm 89, understand that all Scripture is inspired by God. We know this. We believe this to be true. Therefore, if something is stated just a single time, One time in Scripture, it should be good enough for us. Because He already said it. If it's from the Lord, great. I don't need five, six, seven Scriptures, seven passages, numerous books to say the same thing. If He says it once, that should be good enough. A lot of times it's not. A lot of times people will say, well, I see that there, but where else else can you show me proof? Well, hey listen, when God speaks, all He needs to do is speak a word, and I'm going to believe Him for it. That being said, however... The Lord is very familiar with the cynicism, skepticism, doubt, and downright disbelief in the heart of man. He knows us well. And so often, the Lord will repeat Himself throughout the Bible. Again and again, He'll come back to some of the same themes because He wants us to get it. It matters to Him. And especially themes of of, of great importance, critical matters. And Psalm 89 does this. Psalm 89 is the psalmist, Eitan, his name, repeating an amazing covenant about which the Lord clearly wants both the church and Israel to be aware. The Davidic covenant. Psalm 89 is all about the Davidic covenant. A wonderful reminder as God teaches us again of the significance of this covenant. The Hebrew title is a masculine of Eitan, the Ezraite, Eitan, is the writer, and it's a masculine, an instructive psalm, a teaching psalm. Eitan, who is Eitan? Well, there are a couple different Ethans, if you want to call them that. Eitans in, in the Bible that are mentioned. Just as we said Sunday, there are a couple of different Hamans. There's Eitan, Haman, and Asaph, 
who were the three Levitical song leaders who were assigned by David to lead the singing, these are not, this Haman and this Etan in 80, 88 and 89 are not those two guys. Different guys altogether. Well, how do you know that? Because those three song leaders are Levites. Okay? These two guys, Haman in Psalm 88 and Etan in Psalm 89, are from the tribe of Judah. They are not Levites. So they can't be the same guys that are the, the song leaders. And, and that, that's an, an easy mistake to make. But if you dig a little bit, 1 Kings 4.31, we read this on Sunday, Solomon was wiser than all men, than Etan the Ezraite, Himan, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and Solomon's fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Dig a little further, 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, tells us the sons of Zerah were Zimri, Etan, Haman, these are the two guys, Calcol and Dara, uh, five of them in all. Okay, well, who was Zerah? Well, Zerah was a man in the line of Judah. First Chronicles chapter 2, detailing all the different lines within Israel, talking about the line of Judah there, then talks about Judah's sons, one of whom was down the line, Zerah, who then had these guys, these sons. Aton was one of those. Now, great, that's interesting. We've clarified that. I know you were always wanting to know who Aton was. It may seem unimportant on the surface. But I pause to tell you that because Etan's genealogical line through his father Zerah is the line of Judah and that's significant for the writing of this psalm. That's background we should understand coming into this psalm because it is through the line of Judah that God's covenant to David would be kept. So this man is in the line. This man is in that Davidic line and as he writes of God's covenant, he is recognizing something deeply personal to him as well as important for all of Israel. The Psalms then, 89 and, and 88 and 89, the Psalms of Haman and Etan, brothers, are back-to-back Psalms of the faithfulness of God. And that's what they're truly about. Even the Psalm of the Pit. Because we know Joseph was brought out of the pit. We know Joseph's entire life is a picture of the faithfulness of God. Just as Jesus was not left in the grave. He was not left there there to rot. No, God raised Jesus up from the grave. God is faithful. Psalm 88 tells us God is faithful. Psalm 89 will reveal to us tonight. And I remind you again of that wonderful little verse that would be great to put to memory. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Why does God remain faithful? Do you remember? He cannot deny Himself. God remains faithful because He cannot be otherwise. Is there something God can't do? Yes. He can't be unfaithful. Because that would be a denial of His very character. So we're going to look at Psalm 89 for the rest of our time tonight in four parts. And I'll give these to you ahead of time and you can track them through if you're taking notes as, a, as an outline for us. First off, a celebration of divine faithfulness. Etan expresses a celebration of divine faithfulness. Secondly, a declaration of the Davidic covenant. God comes back to again to remind us of what that covenant was with David, of how he expressed it, and, and even further, what was in his heart as he made this special covenant with David. Celebration of divine faithfulness, declaration of the Davidic covenant. Number three, a demonstration of righteous indignation. Demonstration of God's righteous indignation. And finally, number four, a supplication 
for the fulfillment of the covenant. So four words. Celebration, declaration, demonstration, supplication. And if you can remember the shun part, the rest of it you can get. I'll draw you through these. First off, a celebration of divine faithfulness beginning in verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Loving kindness, listen to that, will be built up forever. You realize the grace that God has given for us even to be here tonight. The grace of the Lord that saves us, that same grace, continues to be built up through all eternity. There will never be a time where God will look at you, will look at me, and wonder if He should have saved us. No, because grace will always be there and is continually built up by the work of Jesus Christ. He says, in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Let me ask you all a question. Has God been faithful to you? You know, I... I think that sometimes it takes a few years to get that under our belts. To truly recognize God's faithfulness. As a kid, I could probably say, yeah, God's been good to me. I have a pretty good life. But faithful, I'm not sure. It takes time to recognize faithfulness. Faithfulness is not something that happens in a moment. You know, ask a young married couple in the first year of their marriage, have you been faithful one to another? Yes, Ask that same question 25 years later. And that's where you see the truth of the declaration of faithfulness. Because it's played out over time. In the case of Israel, we see that picture. Most of the Jewish people to this day still await the fulfillment of the covenants. And some of the Jewish people have just given it up altogether. Now those who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah, they recognize that all God's promises are fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Him. But those who haven't are still waiting on His first appearance. And to me it's one of the greatest tragedies of all history. It's a great tragedy because there are those who missed His coming and therefore never had Jesus to believe in and tragically went to the grave that way. But there's a daily tragedy that's part of this as well. And it's the tragedy of all the joyful covenant promises that are being missed along the way. And to those of you who came to faith in Jesus Christ late in your life, you you, you would say that. I've heard some of you say that. I love the Lord. I'm so thrilled to be in the Lord now. I just wish I had known earlier because I've got years of promises that I missed. I've got years of joy that God's making up for. But I wish I had known then. And it's the same thing that we can, just like Israel, we can miss out on the joyful covenant promises if we choose to skulk and sulk our way through life. We were just having this conversation with one of our children tonight, Cheryl and I were. And she pointed out something Beth Moore said that I thought was absolutely uh, brilliant and really fits in with this. And it's the idea that there are tribulations and there are irritations. And so much of the time in our lives... We think we're having tribulation when it's just irritation. You know, this this little illness that I'm dealing with right now is irritating. Is it tribulation? No. Come on. I have my comfy sweater. How could it possibly be tribulation? (laughs) And so we, we go back and forth with these things, but sometimes we get into this funk in life 
And people will choose to live despairingly or hopelessly and bitterly and in so doing deny ourselves of the joy of God's faithfulness. There's not a day that goes by that we shouldn't be able to lift a song of praise to the Father simply because He's faithful. Even if you're having a bad day. God is faithful. Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's a daily hope. It's not a hope that dies every now and then that you have to resurrect. It is a constant, ongoing, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 Paul said in Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive the Lord? In despair, sorrow, frustration, anger, bitterness. I'll become a Christian, I guess. If I have to be a follower of Jesus, Lord, I believe in You. What a depressing thought. No, no. When you give your life to the Lord, it is in joy. Praise God. I am one of Your children. Thank You, Lord, for being faithful. Thank You for waiting for me. Thank you for your patience, God. And there's joy there. And Paul says, you know, as you receive Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. That same heart, that same passion, that same love, that same joy. Walk in that. The expectation of Christmas morning is already permeating my household. And every commercial of every toy is brought to our attention with great consistency. And it's a joy not of possibilities or probabilities. It's a joy among our kids of absolute certainty that there will be packages under that tree with our names on it. And so they're excited even now. And I see a ton. That may be a lame example because Christmas comes and goes and you know, we may or may not have presents under the tree. It just depends. You know, it could be cold. But Eitan describes a certainty, an absolute, something that you can sink your teeth into and cling to and know will never fail, ever, and that is the faithfulness of God. And then the Lord steps in to make His own confirming declaration. God speaking now says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Wow. God made a promise to David. An amazing promise. And the basis for this psalm, and you can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the companion passage to Psalm 89, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is one of the most key passages in all of Scripture, 2 Samuel 7. It's a passage we should all know. And if you don't know it, go back and read it. Not right now. Go back and read it. Study it. Make yourself aware of it. The Davidic Covenant. J. Vernon McGee said, One of the reasons many people find themselves so hopelessly confused in the study of prophecy is because they do not pay attention to this chapter, 2 Samuel 7. And understanding God's will, God's plan for Israel. And again, the companion, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89. These two are to be read together and understood together. So critical is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, again, that the New Testament begins with it. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Davidic covenant. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said in Luke 1.31, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, the Davidic covenant. Peter's opening day sermon, there in Acts chapter Chapter 2 even references 2 Samuel 7 when Peter said in Acts 2.30, David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul begins his landmark letter to the church in Rome by saying the following, Romans chapter 1, verse 2, The Lord promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, the Davidic covenant. Each of the Old Testament prophets, not just New Testament, but the Old Testament prophets, from Samuel forward, again and again and again, return to this covenant promise. It's not just something God said once. It's something He says over and over and over and over throughout all Scripture that we would not miss it. Here's a quick Costco sampling for you. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And that branch is Jesus. Isaiah said in Isaiah 9-7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The Davidic covenant. Ezekiel 37, verse 25 through 28. A few more verses here. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And some believe, and I agree with this, that David himself in the resurrection, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and on forward, David will be like the vice president to Jesus. David himself will be serving there. And there's other passages that seem to support that notion. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 37, God said, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. You see, the Davidic covenant is a sanctuary promise. What do you mean? Because God said, David, I'm going to build you a house, a sanctuary. And that sanctuary is that Davidic covenant. Ezekiel 37.27 My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Psalm 89 is the perfect final psalm for the sanctuary psalms. This psalm is is in place, in the exact right place. It looks forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God's coming sanctuary in and among His people. And, And note that what Ezekiel said. All the nations round about will recognize this to be true and will recognize what God has done for Israel. 
It's important to know. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, Daniel said, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The Davidic covenant. And Daniel talks about that when he's in captivity in Babylon of all places. When the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah wiped out, destroyed, non-existent, at least to the human eye, Daniel says, no, that kingdom's not over. It's coming back. Bigger and better than before. I heard said last night during all the election coverage, there's one good thing about being sick yesterday was I just sat there on the TV flipping back and forth between the news stations watching everything. And Cheryl's like, aren't you sick of this? I love it. I just... I find it fascinating, you know, our whole electoral process. But I was watching and I heard this said, and you've heard me mention probably this before, but America is the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. And I went, nope, Israel is. Israel is. Oh, maybe comparatively not past. America is certainly by far the richest country that's ever existed. Certainly by far the the strongest in terms of uh, you know, international power, at least, at least so far. But Israel. Israel is the only country with an absolute future that is forever. That's the one. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Micah chapter 4, verse 8. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the theme song of the prophets. It comes over and over again and again, and Eitan repeats it here. Now, he picks up, The Lord has said, I made this covenant with David, I have sworn it, I will establish it forever. Verse 5, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones, or literally, the assembly of the saints. He says, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? And who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of of the holy ones, or again, that that can read the assembly of the saints. And awesome above all those who are around Him. I wonder if the reason people question or doubt the faithfulness of God to Israel is simply due to a lack of fear. A lack of fear. What do you mean? I mean when churches gather... Do they do so in such awe and reverence and trembling at the faithfulness of God? When we enter into sanctuary, when we worship on a Sunday, and it's not about the music or the particular style or anything else, it's the fact that we're here gathered and we're calling out to a holy God, do we do so in fear and trembling at the awesome nature and character and power of our Lord? This is why three weeks back I made a big deal of this. This is why I made comments about this. Comments that I, I knew would and has offended some. And I don't mean to be hard-nosed or, or uncompassionate, if that's a word, discompassionate, decompassionate, I don't know. Anyway, we come to worship because He is worth it. We come to worship because He is a faithful covenant-keeping God. We come to worship for Him and not for ourselves. 
And my comments three weeks back about this, you know, I hope, I hope you didn't mishear me, as I fear maybe some have. I wasn't saying, go to another church if you don't like our style of worship. That is not what I was saying. I was saying, if you don't come here to worship God, first and foremost, above anything else that we do, you need to stop and think about, why am I coming? Because God is worthy of our worship. And I'll tell you something. If I thought that my presence here, my teaching of the Word, was a detriment to the worship of God, I would resign and walk away. Because this is simply not about the teaching of a pastor or the style of a worship team. It's the worship of God. And it's recognizing with with absolute awe and fear that He keeps His promises, every one. That's not always easy for us to get. Because we live in a culture that is so used to broken promises. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're used to in relationships? We know that, yeah, I know you're saying that, but somewhere down the line I just have a feeling you're not going to keep that. We're used to finding loopholes in contracts. The entire legal system in America is all about the loophole. Finding a way out. We're used to speaking vows without any meaning whatsoever. And I wonder, in so doing, do we demean the faithfulness of God? When we question His truthfulness, His faithfulness, the surety of His Word, do we, and I'm going to use the word here on purpose, do we abrogate His faithfulness? Abrogate, what does that mean? Well, if you don't know what that means, neither did I had to look it up. To abrogate means to end an agreement or a contract formally and publicly. And so what I'm asking is, do we attempt to abrogate God's faithfulness when we question it? Do we attempt to... Here's the thing. Whether we choose to joyfully believe God for His promises or not, we cannot abrogate His covenants. There are no loopholes. We cannot break them. It's impossible to do so. Now hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. Verse 8. He continues on, O Lord God of hosts, who is like You? O mighty Lord, Your faithfulness also surrounds You. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, You still them, as we know Jesus did. He says, You Yourself crushed Rahab, like one who is slain. Rahab is another name for Egypt. So now, Etan is referring back to, again, their rescue from Egypt. You crushed them like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. And by the way, verse 11 is a great comfort in a failing economy. Listen to it again. The heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. So it all belongs to Him. Lock, stock, and barrel. So if our economy tanks, it's okay. God owns it all anyway. It's not China. It's the Lord. The Lord holds the note to this world. Verse 12. He says, The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. Interesting that he mentions these. Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, the smallest mountain in Israel and the tallest mountain in Israel. 
as though Eitan is making sure to cover all his bases from tiny little Mount Tabor, which is that camelback mountain there in, in the valley, the Jezreel Valley, on the northeastern side of the Jezreel, you can see it, and, and it's one of the most recognizable mountains in Israel because it looks like a camel's back. It just kind of goes up and comes down. It's a hill, really, more than anything else. Mount Tabor. But up on, beyond that, on to the north, you can see off in the distance Mount Hermon, which is a massive, tall, towering, snow-capped mountain. And Eitan says, it's both. From the smallest to the tallest. And I think that's great because here in this fellowship, from the smallest to the tallest among us, we all praise God for faithfulness. We shout for joy to His name. Verse 13, you have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. I pointed this out last week. Let me point it out again. Loving kindness and truth. Grace and truth. The law came through Moses, John wrote. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so every time you see this, loving kindness and truth is grace and truth and it is a reminder of Jesus who is the ultimate answer of God's faithfulness. Amazing. By the way, Eitan's name, if you want to note this, means steady. And who better to write this psalm than a man whose name is steady. Just like God's faithfulness. Steady. Enduring. Maintained over time. Established. So, Eitan's celebration of divine faithfulness now continues. He goes on. He says, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of Your countenance. In Your name, they rejoice all the day. Do you? Do you rejoice all the day? Oh Lord, I'm convicted by that verse alone. Because I do not rejoice all the day. I like to rejoice. And there are pockets of time throughout the day where I hopefully rejoice. But it's often mixed with, oh, a little grumbling here, a little frustration there, a little miserableness here. No, they rejoice all the day. And my friends, there is a day coming when that's all we will do. It's just rejoice. Over and over. And by your righteousness, they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor, our horn or our authority is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. He's he's our blessing. God is our blessing, He's our joy, He's our life, He's our righteousness, our glory, our strength, our authority, our shield, and our King. All of this, all of this, part of of the divine faithful God. All of that included. But then comes the raising up of another King. That is, David by the hand of God. And so the Lord takes the psalm into His own hands again, and the Lord begins to speak with number two, part two now. We have the celebration of divine faithfulness, part one, part two. The declaration of the Davidic covenant. Listen to how God describes this. It's marvelous. Verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, quote, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. So I found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. Little David. Talk about Mount Tabor versus Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was David's older brothers. 
They were the mountains of Jesse, the, the tall sons of Jesse, impressive in stature and in the way they looked. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house in, in Bethlehem, and he goes to anoint the new king. And the first son he sees, Jesse's oldest son, when he sees him, Samuel goes, oh, this is the one. And he starts reaching for the oil, and God says, no, 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 I haven't chosen him. So Samuel said, oh, he's the second. Oh, here's another mountain. Here's another tall guy, good-looking boy, strapping lad. He'll be the... No, no, not him, the Lord says. Through seven sons. All the way through. And finally, the Lord has said no to everyone. And Samuel says, who else? And he says to Jesse, is there no one else here? Did I come to the wrong address today? And Jesse says, well, there's Dave. I'm going to call for Dave. Where is Dave? He's out with the sheep. Oh, you know, tell him to shower. No, you don't have time. All right, just bring David. And they bring in little David. And the Lord goes, yeah, he's my man. He's the one. Samuel's blown away. Samuel anoints David, prays for him. David is blown away. The family is blown away. Jesse, I have all these other sons that are, you know, the big mountains. And you want little Mount Tabor? (laughs) I'm just making an illusion. I don't think Scripture ever compares David to Mount Tabor, but there you have it. I just did. But this declaration, the eighth son of Jesse, 1 Samuel 16 tells that amazing story. David is chosen. And God goes on to declare, verse 22, the enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness, or again, grace, will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. Note that in verse 24. In my name, his horn will be exalted. David's authority came directly from the Lord. Same with you. Same with me. If we have any authority in this earth to speak truth, to offer prayer... To even challenge the enemy, if we have any authority, it is in the name of God. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And His name is my authority. His name is what exalts any authority for Rick. Verse 25, I shall also set His hand on the sea, the Mediterranean, and His right hand on the rivers. That's all the way out to the Euphrates. He's making this grand promise. He will cry to me, verse 26, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now you've got to stop right there for a minute. As God declares the Davidic covenant, He enters into a relationship with David that is absolutely stunning. You see, not only had God already chosen a unique and special relationship with Israel, but when He pulls David out of the mix... He enters into a unique and special relationship with, with, with David that is unseen. Unlike any that has happened before. And note this, God says He will cry to me, quote, You are my Father. You're my Father. Go searching through the Old Testament. God is rarely ever called Father. He's called God, Adonai, you know, Elohim, El Shaddai, a number of names for the all-powerful God. You're not going to see Him called Father, not by very many people. It's extremely 
rare. This is one of those rare times. Oh, he's called Father all throughout the New Testament. Over and over. And we know our Father who, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we, we call him Father. That's, that's the primary name that's been handed to us as believers in Jesus that we might enter into a relationship with Father. But not in the Old Testament. Not yet. David comes along. And the Lord says, He will cry to me, You are my Father. And David gets this astounding relationship. The fatherhood of God seated to David's offspring beginning with Solomon and fully realized in Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7.14 The Lord says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Speaking historically of Solomon, prophetically of Jesus. 1 Chronicles 22.10 He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father. Again, speaking of Solomon who would build the first temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. God as Father. And you need to understand this. If we were a bunch of Jewish people in Old Testament days sitting around talking about the Lord, the name Father is not one that we would use. No way would we go there. And yet God invites David to call him Father. And Jeremiah 3.19 says, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, You shall call me my Father and not turn away from following me. And of course we know the name ascribed to Messiah in Isaiah 9.6 of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Why so significant? God wants to be your Father. Now it wasn't until a few years ago that I began to recognize that this was a hard concept for a lot of people. If you were raised in a home with a distant father, or raised without a father at all, or perhaps raised with a father who was there but was harsh and exacting and demanding, and you look at your father and you're like, I cannot even imagine God being like that. Or or some have said, the problem I have with God is when I think of Him as my father, I look at my own dad. And so because of that, I I can't see God as Father. You need to. We need to flip this thing over. And instead of saying, my Father was this horrible example and and so I can't enter into a father-child relationship with God, God would say to you, would say to me, listen, I am your Father. I am the perfect Father. I'm the Father you never had. And may I just declare to you all, even if you had a good relationship with your earthly dad, he's nothing like your Heavenly Father. Nothing like God. My dad's a great man. I love him. I love him dearly. We have a great relationship. I have incredible respect for my father. I've had a good relationship with him. But he is not God. And he is not even the, the example of the Lord that I, that I see in Scripture. And my dad's a wonderful father. But the example I see in the Lord of Scripture is absolutely always faithful to his children. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, that the relationship that God the Father and Jesus chose for us to see God would be Father-Son. Why would He do that? He didn't have to. Jesus could have come as God in the flesh and just been another aspect of the Trinity, 
the revelation of God in the flesh so we would understand God better, but he added this caveat, this relationship, which I believe has been there eternally, but, but this picture for us to understand, Jesus and the Father, Jesus and His Father God. Listen to this in John chapter 5. In fact, turn over to John 5 for just a moment. I'm going to hang out here just a little bit longer. He will cry to me, You are my Father. David got it. Jesus reveals it now. John chapter 5. Verse 16. Jesus has just healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. So already I can relate. Being a lame man myself, it's nice to know that he could heal that lameness right out of me. Verse 16, it tells us, and this is amazing to me, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. (laughs) How dare you show compassion and healing on the Sabbath day? That's just wrong. See that man walking along after 38 years of paralysis and you healed him on the Sabbath? You couldn't have waited a couple days? You know, if it had been me, I would have said to the Jewish people, would you have wanted to wait a couple more days? You know? How can ultimate and immediate healing not be at the top of your to-do list? Verse 16 tells us they wanted to kill him for it. They're persecuting him for it. Verse 17, And he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was making God his own father, making himself equal with God. What? Now you're see, the Jewish people would be very uncomfortable calling God his father. And yet David did. Their own high king David called God Father. But they're missing the most important thing God has, He holds out for you and for me relationship. It wasn't law after all. It was always a relationship that God was calling people into. And not just any relationship. A father-child relationship. Read on. It says in verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Verse 19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime Jesus says truly twice, pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. What was it that John said earlier tonight? I came with nothing, Lord. John was was praying. I, I had nothing. It was one of those days where I had nothing to give and what you kept telling me, Lord, was good. Now I can work in you. And Jesus says this. Jesus, God in the flesh... The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. So Jesus sets the pattern for us to be children who are completely dependent on our Father to do what He's doing because we can't do it on our own. And He says, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. And we see Jesus do this as He raises people from the dead. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. 
He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Absolutely amazing to me. This father-child relationship, this bond that Jesus says, I have with the Father, but it is also a pattern or an example for us. Jesus would share that father-son relationship. He would share with you and with me. Not in terms of Jesus' divine nature. Okay, let's, let's make a distinction because Jesus was, in fact, saying He was God in the flesh. But, though we are not God in the flesh, praise God, we are not divine beings. Again, praise God. Thank you, Lord. But, we are invited to the same precious relationship that Jesus the Son shared with God the Father. And that, that is just... Wow. Wow. I'm not entering into sanctuary just with a high priest. I'm not entering into sanctuary just with a Lord and Savior. I'm entering into a father-child relationship. Paul writes in Romans 8.15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Something that would blow the mind of the Jewish person away. That, that, that I could call God my Father? Yes. And the wonderful truth to you and to me today is that regardless of our family relationships, how messy or dysfunctional they may have been, and by the way, they all probably are. You're not alone. It's one big, messy, happy family. In spite of all that mess, God would say to you, I want to be in the father-child relationship with you. I want you to call me dad. I want you to respond to me like a son or ladies like a daughter to a real father who is perfect in love and faithfulness and compassion. You may have missed it in your own family life. You will not miss it with God your Father. Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Jesus comes, and this is, this is beyond, I think, even description, but Jesus comes in the flesh as the Son, and then His Spirit now comes into us. When we give our lives to Jesus, we receive the Spirit of Christ, and that Spirit overwhelms us with the sense of our sonship, our daughtership to our Father, just as Jesus had. Are you beginning to get just a taste of the faithfulness of God? Of how incredibly full of love and compassion and tenderness He is for you and for me? That He would call us His children. Don't ever miss or underestimate the wonder of calling Him Father. I think of Ron Overton, Cheryl. Ron Overton, who was an intern of mine in youth ministry back in Southern California, and I loved the way Ron prayed because he couldn't get three words into a prayer without saying Father. It was Father this, Father that, Father this, but it was Father, 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 Father. And and one day I asked Ron about that. Well, what's the deal with that, man? And he just said, because I finally realized one day that God was the Father I never had. You can call Him Father. You are invited to that relationship. 
Now, in the next two verses, we go beyond David, beyond Solomon, to the one of the line of Judah, through whom God's covenant would be realized. Verse 27. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And truly Solomon in his day was highest. There is one who will be higher. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So listen, if at any point the covenant promises of God through Jesus ends for Israel, if at any point God says, I am done with Israel, then the same covenant would be broken for us as well. If God breaks His forever covenant with Israel, then that same covenant which extends to us is broken for us. That's how closely tied we are to the Jewish people. If He doesn't keep those promises, He is not bound to our promises. Verse 29, So I will establish His descendants forever, and His throne as the days of heaven. Verse 30, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, now watch this, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Oh yeah, there will be discipline if they fail to keep their part of the covenant. But, watch, I will not break off my loving kindness from Him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and His throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. My friends, that says it. I will not break off my covenant. I will not abrogate the covenant, God says. Publicly or privately, I will not come along and say, broken. How can God say that? God was a father to David as a father to a son. He anointed David. He gave his spirit to David. He raised David to power. He brought David to rest on every side. And one day David comes along and he says, I've got rest on every side. And I'm dwelling here in this cedar house. And God has a tent. Nathan the prophet was there. Nathan goes, go for it, David. I have a feeling I know where you're going with this. Now I'm paraphrasing. Do it, Dave. And so David determines, I want, to, I want to build a temple. I want to build God a house. I want to honor Him in this. And Nathan's like, that sounds great. But in the night, God said the following, 2 Samuel 7, 11. He said, I want you to tell David these things. He says several things. Let me just tell you a couple. I will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down in 2 Samuel 7.16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And David, David hears this. Nathan comes back to him the next morning and says, There's a change of plans. You're not going to build a house for God. 
But he wants you to know he's going to build a house for you. And David just, he's blown away. He's astounded. We're told in 2 Samuel 7.18 that David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. David's just going, I, I, I mean, I thought you were great before. And here we are and you're saying that you're going to establish this and continue my house on out into eternity? But here's what you've got to see. Four chapters later, the forever throne of David should have been broken. It should have fallen. David took another man's wife in an adulterous affair, Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover up that affair in an unsuccessful campaign. And so that didn't work, so he has her husband Uriah killed. 2 Samuel 7, God makes an eternal covenant. 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David blows it big time. Why didn't God abrogate His covenant to David right then and there? And the answer is simple. Because the covenant never depended on David. It only and always depended on God. It was a promise God made in His own name and by His own character, not based on what David would do. Not based on how David... David could do anything, literally, the rest of his life. He could be a complete mess up. And he did, completely mess up. But God's covenant would yet stand. The kingdom, the kingdom in the hands of the Davidic line, it went south. It failed. It did not do well, and the people went into captivity. But God's covenant remained. Now you need to understand all this because suddenly now we're thrust into part three of this psalm, a demonstration of righteous indignation. Psalmist describes all this. Two-thirds of the psalm, the covenant of David, the faithfulness of God, it's all wonderful, but... Verse 38. You've cast off and rejected. You've been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned His crown in the dust. You have broken down all His walls. You have brought His strongholds to ruins. All who pass along the way plunder Him. He has become a reproach to His neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of His adversaries. You've made all His enemies rejoice. And you also turn back the edge of His sword and have not made Him stand in battle. You have made His splendor to cease and cast His throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of His youth. You have covered Him with shame. Selah! (laughs) You know, the Selah, the pause in the Psalms, we always think of it in terms of a musical interlude where we can pause and think about and and just rest in the sanctuary of the Lord. Not here. This pause is, what? How does this work? Now listen, Aton must have written this as an old man. And I think that because we know he was a contemporary of Solomon. We know he was there in Solomon's day. He was compared to Solomon and Solomon was called even wiser than Aton. But he must have lived long enough. Solomon died at the age of 60. 
So Hatan must have lived long enough beyond that to see the covenant kingdom lose its splendor. Note in verse 38, it says, You have cast off and rejected. You've been full of wrath against your anointed. Your anointed there would be Rehoboam, son of Solomon, who blew it far worse than Grandpa David or even Dad Solomon blew it. Rehoboam. (laughs) Incredible. Rehoboam's heavy-handed taxation of the people divided the country and gang, it was no tea party. (laughs) I couldn't resist that. (laughs) The evil Jeroboam, it's amazing how history repeats itself though, isn't it? You know, when the people get heavily taxed, we say, no more! I'm done with this! And that's what happened in Israel. Exact same thing. The taxes got heavy. Rehoboam says, you know what, I'm the king. I'm the boss. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to shove it down your throats and you can just take it, Israel. And Israel said, "Uh uh-uh. And ten of the twelve tribes split to the north with Jeroboam, who was listed as one of the most evil men in all of Scripture. Because he would take those ten northern tribes into idolatry in a horrid way. In the south, Judah and Benjamin are left. The kingdom of Judah under now Rehoboam. And Etan sees it happen. And Etan is writing about the covenant of the Lord and the covenant through David and how marvelous all of that is. It's just a wonderful thing. And then, crash and burn. And so he's sitting there and he's watching. He's holding up, as it were, two contradictory hands. Hand number one, the covenant of the Lord. Perfect, unconditional promise of God. Look at the covenant. Hand number two, the conditions of the Lord's people. Not good. A tragic, unfaithful failure of a kingdom. Broken, divided. And down the road, Assyria would come. Babylon would come. Covenant. Eternal. Conditions. Not good. Ever been there? But God, I know, promised me this, and yet I'm not seeing it. I'm not experiencing these promises. You promised us a kingdom, Lord! But the kingdom is failing, it's splitting, it's dividing. Our enemies are having a field day with us. How can God be faithful to me and my life, or in Aton's case, the kingdom, be such a mess? Has God violated His promises? Let me go back to the question I asked you all when we began. Has God been good to you? Has God been faithful to you? And I said, remember, it usually takes a few years for us to truly start to understand faithfulness, for us to get that under our belts. I'm 25 years now into my marriage. And it's wonderful. And I'm thankful. My best friend's parents divorced after 35 years. 35 years. And so faithfulness that lasted this long crumbled and fell. And it hit me just in studying this week that faithfulness is not determined over time. Faithfulness is determined and understood through faith. It takes faith to get faithfulness. It is faith on our behalf. It is someone like Eitan looking at the conditions on the ground and comparing with the covenant of God and saying, I know the conditions are bad. I know that it looks like everything has failed. But I know God's faithful. I know He's made a covenant. When we get in that situation, we have a choice. Do we buy the conditions on the ground? 
Or do we rest in the covenant of the Lord? Do we assume that it's all lost because everything's bad? Or do we say, no, everything may be bad right now, but God's faithful. And I know some, I can't see it right now, but I know He's going to follow through. And Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I've shared with you before, writers, commentators, and writers like Sir Robert Anderson, I love Sir Robert Anderson, wrote in the 1800s a book called The Coming Prince, all about Israel and Antichrist and what the Bible said was coming. And he wrote it in a time when Israel did not exist, but he wrote the book assuming their existence before all things would come to pass. How could he assume that? Because he knew God was faithful. Because he read the covenant. He said, well, Israel's going to exist. It has to, because God has not fulfilled this covenant, and God doesn't break His covenants. He doesn't break His promises to you and to me. And so here we are in this psalm, and the first two-thirds are this wonderful covenant promises, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and the last third is bad news. But what this man of faith does through the entire psalm, written in a time of Israel's failure, what Eitan does is he returns to the sanctuary. And I want you to catch this. He goes to the sanctuary. Sometimes when we read the Psalms, we read them like a timeline. And we shouldn't. What do you mean? I mean, we start in verse 1, and we begin going through, oh, he's happy, he's praising God, he's covenant, oh, this is all good, oh, this is wonderful, uh-oh, uh-oh, things are going bad, oh, things end up bad, oh, well, I guess it was just bad for a time. <laughs> That's not how it goes. The condition of the heart of this psalm writer is the entirety of the psalm, not the end of the psalm. Actually, the very end of the psalm is is the heart of Eitan. We'll get there. But listen, here's what you do. The answer, when life gets hard, when you can't see the promises, when the fulfillment of all that God told you He was going to do seems to be failing, here's what you do. You rejoice in worship. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. As Eitan begins, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Remember, he wrote those words when Israel was in the tank. He wrote those words looking at a divided, messed up kingdom. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Even though conditions on the ground were bad, Eitan says, I'm going to rejoice in worship. Second thing you do. You remember God's covenant or His faithfulness. You might not see it. It might be bad. It may seem even in the moment that He is being unfaithful. He's not. And Aton, verses 3 and 4, remembers the covenant that God spoke to David. You rejoice in worship. You remember God's covenant. You revisit the blessings of God, which He does, verses 15 through 18. He just thinks about the blessings. He talks about the blessings. He rejoices in the blessings of God. He revisits the blessings that God has poured out. You rejoice in worship. Remember the covenant. Revisit the blessings. Number four, you restate the covenant again. If you're starting to, you've said God is faithful, I know He is, but then you're starting to falter a bit, man, go back and restate it again. As we see happening in the Psalm, verses 19 through 37, the whole thing is a restatement, a reamplification here of this great covenant. And you recognize your failures. And those of your people. Verses 38 through 48 is a recognition that, boy, we have blown it. We're in a bad state here. You've shortened the days of our youth. You've covered us with shame. This is not good. He says, reading on down. 
And finally, finally, you request the return of the faithfulness of the Lord. Watch this. Verse 46. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what span, what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. This sounds like an older man. He's saying this. I don't have long here. I don't have long to live here, Lord. And I have seen the glory of Israel and I have seen the failure of Israel. Remember, I don't have much time. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? This is a plea on the, on the part of Etan. Show me something here, Lord. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? And by the way, this is part four, the supplication. Supplication for the fulfillment of the covenant. He says, Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants. How I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. He's praying, God, fulfill your covenant. You said you would do it, Lord. Do it. And then he ends, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. And it is a wonderful ending to a glorious psalm of faith. Yes, the latter third of the psalm is about things falling apart. But it is in the context of God's faithfulness. And Etan is declaring in this whole psalm, God will not forget His people. God will remain faithful. Now what's wonderful here is that this, this man couldn't see how the Davidic covenant could be fulfilled. Where, from where he sat, it's over. The kingdom is faltering, it's falling apart. But Atan still trusted the Lord to do it. He still believed God is going to follow through. Steady old Atan. We could call him Steady Eddie, if you want. He is content. Watch this, note this. He is content to end the psalm with a double Amen. A double Amen at the end of the song. Don't miss that. Amen and Amen. Les pointed this out in our staff meeting this morning. He didn't know I was going to talk about this. He just said to to one of our staff members, he said, you have a double Amen there. You have a statement of the Lord into your heart and you have a confirmation. It's a double Amen. It's a truly, truly. And every time there's a truly, truly, listen to that. that, And you remember I, I looked at Les and I go... Where'd you? Uh, what do you mean by that? Because I knew, I knew how this psalm ended—a double, amen. So what? Amen and amen. It is a truth spoken, and it is a truth confirmed. Every time you see a double amen, that's what it's saying in Scripture: a truth spoken and a truth confirmed. It's God speaking into your heart, saying, "I'm going to do this." And then something marvelous happening that absolutely confirms what God has already said. Amen and Amen. And it would be a thousand years for the covenant to recognize fulfillment with the coming of Messiah. From where Aton was sitting as he wrote this, he could only express this psalm in faith. Somehow, I can't see it, but somehow, I know God's going to fulfill this. Amen and Amen. And what's amazing is, ironically, the one who would fulfill this entire covenant 
is often quoted as saying, Amen and Amen. Or as is translated in the New Testament, Truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Amen and Amen. That's what Jesus was saying every single time. He's quoted saying this no less than 25 times in John's Gospel alone. Amen and Amen. Truly, truly. And let me give you one quote. John 16.20 Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grief, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And isn't that true, ladies? I'm never going to do this again! And then the child's born. It's like, hey, want to have another child? (laughs) To a man, it is absolutely astounding that you would ever have more than one child. I watched Cheryl go through it. 14 hours of labor with Corey. And no drugs, not even for me. (laughs) I watched it happen and I just went, this is brutal. Praise God, I was born a man. (laughs) And yet, how long was it? A month? Two months? Three? Before we were talking about our second child? And, And Jesus says, Amen. And Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. He says, you too may have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Truly, truly, amen and amen. And Father, we say that. We join in with a time tonight to say amen and amen. We believe you for your promises, and we have seen confirmation in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we believe you for your promises for this church fellowship. And we believe you for your promises to each person here. And we absolutely believe you for the promise of the return of Christ Jesus who will set up that eternal kingdom, who will stand there, there at Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives to the east, who will enter in through the Golden Gate, and who will establish the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Amen and amen, Lord. We know you've said it. We know you're going to do it. And I pray, Father, as we, as we conclude our time and as we head into some prayer tonight, I ask, Lord, that You will confirm again Your covenant promises and Your faithfulness to Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.